a thriving church with a major impact on the city. God is doing some amazing things there in Ephesus through this church. In fact, really when you back up and you you look at the New Testament as a whole, the church at Ephesus plays a central role in the New Testament. From its founding, its growth in Acts 18 and 19, all the way to its inclusion in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, as one of the seven churches of Revelation. The church at Ephesus is there, from the infant church founded in Acts all the way through the end of the New Testament. As we already mentioned, the church of Ephesus was founded by Aquila and Priscilla with the help of Apollos. It thrived under the ministry of the Apostle Paul for three years. In fact, as Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy to a young man, a young Timothy, Timothy is actually at that time pastoring this church in Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians as we are studying now. And it's actually even strongly implied by Irenaeus in his work against heresies that the Apostle John spent the later years of his life in Ephesus, encouraging the churches in the area there. This is a church that had a major impact on the world. Central to what God was doing. But as we come to the book of Ephesians this morning, the book of Ephesians is written... To the church at Ephesus, while it is still relatively young and healthy. It's a ten-year-old church. The gospel first got to Ephesus in A.D. 52. This book is written around A.D. 62. The book of Ephesians is a deeply doctrinal book. And yet it's very practical as well. The first three chapters dive deep into the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last several chapters take that truth and apply it very practically to life, as you'll see as we work our way through this book. So as we jump into Ephesians 3, I'm going I'm to start by quickly reviewing where we've been in the first two chapters. Then we'll unpack the glorious mystery of Christ as laid out here in Ephesians 3, 1-6. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do rejoice that Christ arose. And we recognize, even as we've just confessed in song, that our hope is in Christ alone. It is in Christ alone that we stand. It is in Christ alone that we have hope. It is in Christ alone this morning that we come before you boldly. We cry out, Abba, Father. It is in Christ alone this morning, Heavenly Father, that we know that we will be heard. And we pray that even as we study this passage, that your name will be lifted high. That these truths will dig deep into our hearts and our souls. That we will be awakened from our slumber and energized with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this mystery of Christ now revealed in these ages. Keep our hearts and our minds from distraction. I pray that you would give me boldness and authority to preach your word with clarity, that your name may be honored 
that your gospel may go forth, that your spirit may work through your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we turn to this passage this morning, I've got some good news for you. Brothers and sisters, you are rich. You are rich. In fact, according to CNN Business, 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. 71%. That's only $3,650 a year. In fact, if you make at least $18,000 a year, you are considered wealthy in the world. You are in the top 7% in the world in terms of wealth. This is the message of Ephesians, that you are wealthy. But Paul here is not talking about your finances. Paul is pointing out the riches that are yours in Christ. We've seen that even in the first two chapters. That's exactly where Paul begins this morning as as he gives us a reason to rejoice, his right to speak, and then the message that he proclaims. But the first thing we see this morning is a reason to rejoice. And he starts out, for this reason. For this reason. Well, hopefully the first question in your mind is, well, what reason? I'm clearly jumping into the middle of a thought. What reason? The reason that Paul is putting forth here is the reason that he has just unpacked for us in chapters 1 and 2. It is the riches that are ours in Christ. We've spent the last several months working our way through those chapters, looking at those riches. In chapter 1, it is the fact that you have been chosen by God in eternity past. Elect by His grace. Redeemed by His grace. You have been given an inheritance in Christ that you do not deserve by the grace of God. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 2 unpacks that a little bit more. You have been chosen. You have been redeemed. You have been given an inheritance. What does that look like? Brothers and sisters, it means that you have been brought from death to life. You have been brought from far to near. You have been brought from out to in. You have been put together in one new man in Christ for the glory of God. And all of this is ours in Christ. You are rich. You are wealthy in Christ. You are a son of God, a daughter of God, a co-heir with Christ, even as we'll see in this passage as we work our way through it, down in verse 6. And so it is all of these glorious truths that Paul is here reacting to because of all of this that is yours in Christ. Because of what God has done for you in Christ by grace. It is for this reason that I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Now here's where Paul's humanity comes out. Sometimes I think we read scripture and we 
put these men up on pedestals and we think they're just you know, so far above us. We do that even today, do we not? Men and women that we look up to, it's hard to see them as, as, as flawed and as limited as we are. But here we see a little bit of Paul's humanity because Paul doesn't even finish this thought. For this reason, this glorious reason that he's just unpacked, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and, and he's getting ready to say something. He's really actually, what he's doing here is he's starting a prayer. And his prayer is that all of these truths will really seep into your life and take hold of you and that you will live in this reality. But he doesn't actually get to that prayer until verse 14. He gets distracted here in verse 2. And that shows Paul's humanity, does it not? How many of us do that? We walk into a room to do something and you forget why you're in that room. A million other things come up that need to get done, so, so you do them. I had a friend in college that was very much this way. He would get in these moods where he just, he had, he had a big test coming up, a big project. He knew he had to get stuff done, so he would sit down to do it. But then he, when he would sit down, he would get his book out. He would realize, well, my desk is messy. I can't study. I don't have room to study. So he'd clean his desk. And then cleaning his desk, he would realize that he hadn't made his bed that morning. So he'd make his bed, and he'd realize the sink's dirty, and so he'd clean the sink. And, and before you know it, his room is spotless, but he hasn't studied for his test. He's gotten distracted. I think we've all done that at some time. You start out with something, and you get distracted. Paul here gets distracted. He's got this glorious reason, this, this hope that he is going to unfold in this prayer. But he gets distracted, really, with, with the mystery of Christ, as we will see here. His right to speak on this, his God-given authority. So he takes a break here, 13 verses, to kind of unpack that. And it starts here where he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of, the, of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. You can almost see him starting the prayer for you Gentiles. And he thinks, well, maybe I should explain to them what I mean there. And so he takes a break and he starts to explain that. And then before you know it, after explaining that, he, he gets tied into, well, why is it that I'm called to the Gentiles? It's because of the grace of God. And, and so he starts unpacking that. And, and then he realizes 13 verses later, wait a second, I started a prayer. I've got to get back to that. And so really, I almost titled the sermon this morning, Hold That Thought. Because hold that thought here at the beginning of verse 3. We'll get back to it. But Paul really starts here, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Prisoner. There's both a literal and a, a metaphorical idea to that word there. You see, even as Paul is writing this, remember this is a prison epistle. Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. He is quite literally a prisoner. And yet in Paul's mind, in submission to the sovereignty of God, in recognition of the sovereignty of God, Paul is not a prisoner of Jerusalem. He's not a prisoner of Rome. But Paul recognizes that he, even in prison, is exactly where God wants him. And so I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Most ultimately, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Wherever I am, under any and all circumstances, I, Paul, recognize that I am Christ's 
And I am fully committed to his purposes. Fully committed to his mission, even here in prison. Paul can literally say that because he understands that in terms of a, a metaphorically, he, he really is a prisoner of Christ. He is, I am not my own. For I have been bought with a price, with the blood of Jesus Christ. I am not my own. I am God's. This is not a demeaning term. It is a privilege to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For my life to belong to him, as Paul goes on to say in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ. And even death is gain. Because I am a prisoner of him. Because I am his. I am no longer my own. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Paul was specifically called to the Gentiles. Even all the way back in Acts 9 verses 1 to 19 as he is called on the road to Damascus as that bright light shines. Even in those verses there is the promise that he will be the apostle to go and to serve the Lord and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In 1 Timothy 2.7 and in 2 Timothy 1.11 Paul again states very clearly I am called to go to the Gentiles for the gospel. And perhaps that is the most shocking thing about all of this is the inclusion of the Gentiles. Paul has just spent all of chapter 2 really diving into that. You Ephesians, you Gentiles, you are in Christ as well. You have hope. Jesus died for you. But Paul recognizes also that the fact that his ministry is specifically to the Gentiles uniquely places him in the crosshairs. Yet he counts it a privilege. Paul's message and ministry are offensive, not just because he preaches a resurrected Savior, as we see in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 9, but because he preaches a resurrected Savior and the grace of God to the Gentiles also. At a time in which Paul is preaching this, that is shocking. And yet he goes and he preaches boldly because he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For you Gentiles. So the first thing we see here is a reason to rejoice. Your riches in Christ. And my responsibility to you, I have been called to preach this message to you Gentiles. You have a reason to rejoice. To join in this rejoicing. And so, he will get that. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, to you Gentiles, he'll get to that call to, to rejoice in chapter 14. But here in chapter 2, he gets distracted. 
And he really starts to unfold his right to speak, his calling as an apostle. I am Paul, I'm the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Uniquely, that is my calling, my ministry. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Really, this isn't a assumed, you, you know this. Paul assumes that they know this, and yet he, he goes on to summarize. All of this, just to be sure. You know this. If you have heard of this, the, the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. The idea of dispensation there is stewardship. Specifically, it is talking of Paul's ministry by the grace of God to preach the grace of God to the Gentiles. I have received this gospel ministry and I am a steward of it. Specifically, I have been uniquely called to steward this message to the Gentiles. To take the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles. This dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Again, Paul's unique ministry, his unique calling to go to the Gentiles. How did this happen? Did Paul just wake up one day and decide, you know what? I'm going to try and, and branch off and make my ministry stand out, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Is Paul trying to sell books or t-shirts? No. How did this happen? Well, verse 3. By revelation, he made known to me the mystery. By revelation, man did not reveal this to Paul. Paul did not wake up one morning with a funny feeling in the pit of his stomach and say, you know what, I think that means I should go to the Gentiles. This was revealed to him by God. Like Acts 9, 1-19, I already referenced it. Paul's conversion. On the road to Damascus is, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He is called specifically to go and to preach. Even as he eventually makes his way to those disciples of Jesus Christ who are specifically told, this man is coming to you, this man who will take the gospel to the Gentiles. In God's purpose, in God's plan, in God's way, he has revealed this to Paul. This is your ministry. And his ministry is to preach and to proclaim this mystery. By revelation, he made known to me the mystery. See, going back to that idea of dispensation of the grace of God, Paul has a unique stewardship of this gospel, and yet, at the same time, it is a specific stewardship uniquely given to Paul in the early church, and yet at the same time, it is a change in God's redemptive program. This 
church is new. It is the one new man, as we saw in Ephesians 2. God is doing something, revealing something new. It was a mystery. The idea of mystery, right, that's an intriguing word. Kind of grabs our attention, a mystery. It's really one of the themes of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, there's a mystery revealed. It is God's ultimate plan to unite all things together in Christ. At the end of history, God's big picture In Ephesians 3, 32, it is the mystery of marriage. It pictures Christ and the church. That wasn't revealed until the church came, until God revealed it here in Ephesians. Here it is the mystery. That the grace of God is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. It is the mystery of the church. Wiersbe helps us to define what Paul means when he says mystery. Wiersbe says this, In the New Testament, a mystery is not something eerie or inscrutable, but rather a truth that was hidden by God in times past and is now revealed to those who are in his family. It is a mystery as if God, not, not as if God didn't know it. It is a mystery in terms of God has just now chosen to reveal it. This has been God's plan all along. And God has just now chosen to reveal it. In God's perfect timing. His perfect way. In dispensation of the grace of God. Given to me. I have been called to preach this mystery. This mystery, as I have briefly written already, really all of chapters 1 and 2, unfolding part of this mystery, this mystery by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. My knowledge, my God-given authority to preach, my divine message to proclaim. God has revealed this to me. He has uniquely called me to preach this. This mystery here is a little bit more defined, added to those terms. That term mystery is mystery of Christ. A mystery of Christ, specifically his ministry of uniting Jew and Gentile in himself and ultimately to unite them to God, as we see in Ephesians 2. This is my calling, my ministry, my privilege. This is why I serve as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, giving up all of my rights and privileges for his glory to go where he calls me. Because of the glorious grace of God is revealed in this mystery. So Paul stands. He has authority to proclaim this. Authority given to him by God himself. Divine right. This has been revealed to me. And I have been called to proclaim it to you. And what is this message that he proclaims? As we see here in verses 5 and 6. He made known to me the mystery 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Again, the idea of a mystery there. It was not made known to them. This is something new that God has revealed. And it's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Those holy apostles and prophets who we were just told in Ephesians 2.20, they are the foundation of the church. Notice it doesn't include the elders here. These apostles and prophets is a unique role, temporary ministry. They are the foundation of the church, laying the groundwork. Revealed by the Spirit. In fact, that's exactly what we see in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, is it not? passage that talks about the inspiration of Scripture, which is a, t- uh, a type uh, of revelation, special revelation by God. How did Scripture come about? Did it come by the will of mankind? No. We have a more sure word. That's the fascinating thing about that passage in 2 Peter, and I, I'd invite you to study it sometime. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, if you back all the way up even to verse 16. Peter there starts with the fact that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I beheld this with my eyes. I saw Christ in his glory. And yet, you know what? Peter doesn't say, therefore listen to me. What Peter goes on to say is you have an even more sure word. Even more than my eyes that saw the risen Christ, you have the word of God. The word of God that is not the ideas or the thoughts of any man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's the same thing that Paul is getting at here. This revelation that was given to him, this the stewardship that he has to preach this good news, they revealed to the other apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It comes from divine origin. This is God's idea. These are God's words. Not Peter's or Paul's or any of the other apostles. And so what is this mystery of divine origin, this mystery that that God has kept revealed until this current age that he has revealed? That's what we see in verse 6. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promises in Christ through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that is a glorious sentence. That the Gentiles, we just looked at that in chapter 2. These Gentiles, who had no hope, who were far off, and yet have been brought near. Even they are included by the grace of God. That they should be fellow heirs. The idea here, as Paul is dealing with in the first two chapters of Ephesians, uh, even here into chapter 3, is fellow heirs with the Jews. And yet, Revelation takes, or Romans take this a step further in, Rev, in Romans 8, 17. Not just are we fellow heirs with the Jews, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 
by the grace of God. Gentiles included in the people of God, fellow heirs with Christ, full recipients of the grace of God. In fact, of the same body. Paul's making it abundantly clear here. You're not second-class citizens. One new body, not two related bodies. My brother and I, we come from the same family. We've had the same experiences growing up. We grew up in the same home, went to the same school. And yet, there were some differences. I was the oldest, so I got treated differently. He's the youngest, so he gets his way in everything that he ever does. <laughs> you probably understand those dynamics if you've grown up in a family. Right? It's the same family, but there's some differences. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not just that we're brothers, that we're included in the family, but, you know, a little Israel's first, and then we, we are one body in Christ. One body. The same experiences, the same right, the same grace. Even, as we see in this verse, partakers of his promises in Christ. Partakers of his promises. We just saw that in Hebrews, did we not? As we worked our way through Hebrews. How, how we participate in the, the new covenant that God has made with his people. We are included in that. Called to those benefits, that hope in Christ. By his effective blood. Proclaimed in his resurrection. We are full beneficiaries. Truly, truly the world is blessed through the seed of Abraham. To God be the glory. How can this be? How can this be? How can we who are far off be brought near? How can we who had no rights now have rights? How can we who are aliens and strangers now be citizens? It is in Christ, through the gospel. Not by good works. Not by anything that we can do or earn. But in Christ. Because of his blood. On the hope of his resurrection and ascension. In Christ, through the gospel. Those are really kind of the same thought. Because our hope in Christ is through the gospel. The gospel is the incarnation. It is the crucifixion, his substitutionary atonement in my place. The gospel is his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. Because he is the son of God. Because he died for me. 
because he rose victorious, because he ascended on high, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading for me, because he is my high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, because he is coming again. All of that is mine in Christ. So brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. For you who are far off have been brought near. That is the mystery of Christ. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promises in Christ through the gospel. So as we come to conclusion, brothers and sisters, this is good news. Have you ever received news that changed the whole outlook of your day? News that just puts a smile on your face for others around you. You know, what, what's going on? Something's different about you today. You, you can't stop smiling. I, I tend to smile a lot. I'm, I'm a smiler. It's gotten me in trouble before. One time we were, Chris and I, working at Good News Ministries in Indianapolis, and uh, this kid had had his bike stolen. His parents came, his dad came. He was really mad. And he was asking me, you know, why haven't you guys done this and this? What are you doing to find my son's bike? And, and I'm trying to calmly explain to him, and I'm saying, you know, sir, we've, we've searched it. We've asked the kids. We, we held them back. We've contacted their parents. We're, we're looking. We're waiting. And he just got so mad at me. He said, do you think this is a joke? You're sitting here smiling. And his son was standing there, and he goes, Dad, he's goofy like that. He always smiles. <laughs> it's not that he's not taking this seriously. But have you ever received news like that where, where you just you can't hold in the smile? It is such good news. It is evident all over your countenance. It's news that puts a pep in your step, a smile on your face. Brothers and sisters, this is that kind of news. This doesn't just change the outlook of your day. This changes the outlook of eternity. This changes who you are and what you do. So rejoice in the gospel. Wake up from your slumber. Lord, renew to me the joy of my salvation. Let it be evident in my countenance. Let it put a smile on my face, the joy of the Lord in my heart. Because I am a fellow heir of the same body, a partaker of his promises in Christ through the gospel. And that changes everything. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the gospel. Ask yourself, what does it look like to rejoice? If this is true, how should it change my day? What should it look like if I have this hope? Part of rejoicing in the gospel is growing in Christ. Read the word. Soak it up. Remind yourself of this good news daily. Put on the armor of God and go to battle with a smile on your face and a pep in your step because you have been made new in Christ. Because the victory is always yours. Because Christ is coming again. 
Live like you're a fellow heir. Live like you have hope. And finally, often when you receive that kind of good news, not only is it something that is evident on your face, but is evident in your words, you cannot help but to tell that good news. You are eager to tell when people ask, what's different about you? Why are you smiling so much today? What happened? Be eager to tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be eager to reveal this mystery of Christ. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That he has risen again. He is victorious and he is coming. So won't you believe like I have? Won't you find hope, forgiveness, grace, and mercy? Won't you come? Let me introduce you to my God. Let me tell you about his grace. Are you eager to tell of that? Rejoice in the gospel, but don't, don't just rejoice at home. Go and tell the good news. For you are an heir, a fellow heir with Christ, made new. So rejoice. We're going to close this morning with the song, The Look. It's a song that's really calls us to meditate on some of these very truths. Why me? I am so undeserving, and yet this is a song that calls us to rejoice and to realize that it is by grace. It is not something that I deserve. It's all about Christ. And in response, as the chorus says, and now... My life will sing the praise of pure atoning grace that looked on me and gladly took my place. I hope that that is your testimony this morning, that you can testify of the grace of God, that you have placed your faith in Christ alone. And even this morning as we are singing this song, as we're closing our service, if you have any questions, I would invite you, even as we are singing, come to the front and seek me out, and I would love to take you aside. I will be standing right down here. I'd love to take you to my office to open the Bible and to point you to Jesus Christ and to answer those questions. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you are still clinging to your own works, thinking that you can save yourself, won't you come this morning and place your faith in Christ alone? Let's stand together and sing the look.